Hello and welcome to episode 170 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Hello, Jason. I am doing well, sir. How are you? Fine, just fine. Thank you. <laughs> that was believable, I yeah, think. Yeah, it's, I think you'll mirror the sentiment that it's been a pretty uneventful week personally at least not much yes it's been very busy professionally and we have much much to talk about but yes personally it has been a rather uneventful week thankfully considering the week i had last week so i'm glad to be smooth sailing once again yes nothing to report no so on we go that was i think possibly the shortest introduction ever fantastic to any episode that we've recorded on so On with it. We've divided the show into kind of three sections this week. We've got the good news section up at the top, although some of these, it depends on which audience you're talking about, whether it's good news or bad news. But then we kind of mix in like the middle half and half good news, bad news, and then there's some bad news down near the end. So we'll find a a way to to end the show, I guess, on on a happy note somewhere. We'll find something to do it, but we'll do it. So let's start with, I guess, good news all around, except for the people who, for whatever reason, really hate the A380. For them, I guess it'll be bad news. But for everyone else, this week was the week of A380s either returning to service with airlines or being announced that they will return to service with airlines. So let's start with the will return to service. Lufthansa announced earlier in the week that they would return an undetermined number of A380s to an undetermined collection of routes by summer 2023. So a lot of ambiguity there. They've since clarified today that they'll start, possibly expand, but start with four to five A380s being based in Munich. Routes still undetermined. But at least we know a a little bit more. So the airline has 14 A380s in its fleet. All are currently parked either in Spain or the south of France. Four to five will come back for the the summer season 2023. So Jason, the the summer IATA schedule goes into effect in what is it? The beginning of April? I think it's the beginning of April. Yeah. Yeah. Sooner rather than later, yet not soon enough, if you ask. I'm sure anyone working at Lufthansa right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be amazing for them to, you know, operate basically half the number of flights on certain routes and carry the same amount of passengers dealing with everything that they've been dealing with. But the Super Jumbo will come back for Lufthansa. Good news. It is, in fact, back this week for, well, two Korean airlines, Asiana and Korean Air, both re inaugurated A380 service on routes this week. That is, for ASEAN, it's the first time since the pandemic. Korean Air has kind of worked it into the schedule a little bit more gently, I guess you could say, but they are back. Korean Air has two in service. They are scheduled to have three by the end of the year. ASEAN has two in service, and I'm not exactly sure on how many they fully intend to bring back, but they are back. And there's also, you know, Qantas continues to bring theirs back. They've got four in service now. They've got two in maintenance in Abu Dhabi. So that'll bring it up to six and they're going to go up to 10. 
ANA will bring theirs back next week for summer service from July to October for flights between Tokyo and Honolulu. Let's see, who am I missing? Oh, China Southern still has theirs. Three of their five active two are already in the desert. And those never stopped running. Yeah, those were some of the only ones to never be fully grounded by the airline throughout. And so as of this week, more than 50% of the airline A380 fleet is back in passenger service. That's pretty great. Of course, I'm especially happy is that the Lufthansa and Korean both, I know Korean already started sending their, their A380 back to New York. I'm sure Lufthansa will as well. That's a no-brainer. Asiana probably as well. I will be very happy to see these aircraft back. And it, it really seemed like the death of the A380 was greatly exaggerated. Though at a point, it really felt like it was going to be a, a foregone conclusion that they would be gone and retired and no airline would want it. But now they need them. They need them bad. They need that capacity. And they need it as soon as possible, which unfortunately for Lufthansa is not until almost a year from now. But it's good news nonetheless, unless you don't like the A380 or think it represents everything that was wrong with the airline industry pre-COVID. Maybe not great news for you if you if you think that way, but more capacity, more better. I think from one perspective, being the looking at the A380 flying, I happen to enjoy that. I don't think it's the most attractive plane, but there's a certain grace about watching it fly. It's like watching a a large ship make its way through the water the way it flies. And there's something about that I enjoy. On the more practical side, airlines need capacity. They need so much capacity. And if you can fly 550 people with three or four pilots instead of eight pilots, that's a great thing. That is a great thing. It's almost too bad that we never got the, the crazy A380s in service, like the ones that were destined for Transaero, which I think were supposed to have upwards of 800 passengers on board. Some airlines, I'm sure, would, would really like to have those in service right now. Some of these actually aren't even all that much high density, like Korean Airs and a couple of the others. They're actually very low density compared to some of the other aircraft. I think Korean Airs A380 isn't all that much more capacity bearing than and some of their 777s, but all adds up in the end. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how long they stick around once they're all back and how deep into the schedule do these aircraft go? Do they become summer aircraft where there's a, a huge capacity lift needed? Do we see more A380s hit the secondary market with wet lease operators? Does Highfly take another crack at this and say, well, Oh, no. This is the perfect time. I don't know. I hope not. I don't know. Correction to myself just now there, the uh, Asiana and Korean Air A380s are actually quite a bit higher density than any of the 777s or A350s in their fleet. So that's a, a significant capacity boost. Not the same for all airlines out there, but I cannot imagine we will see the return of a wet lease A380 operation like HiFi attempted back in the day. Uh, that did not go well for anybody. <laughs> Especially iFly. At the end of the day, it's still an aircraft that you can't just pop into any airport in the world with. Even airports that are ready to accept an A380 couldn't handle it on short or, or no notice or whatever right, you right. You need to have reservations. Yes, reservations required. It's not a walk-in aircraft. No, but that's good news if you like the A380, which I do. So I'm, I'm keeping this in the good news section of this episode. All right. 
So this is one of those stories where it's good news for somebody. We're not sure who by the time the podcast comes out, we will know who it is good news for. We think we will know. We it think could be, we, it could be delayed again. That, that's true. That's true. So since last we met, last week, when we talked about the ongoing saga of JetBlue, Spirit, and Frontier, I believe Frontier had leapt back into the – or no, JetBlue was in the lead. Frontier, later in the week after we recorded, or early this week, came back and re-upped its offer for Spirit Airlines, saying that they would pay an increased amount of cash and they would up their offering of a reverse breakup fee to match Spirit's – or to match JetBlue's for Spirit. JetBlue then came back and modified their offer after going directly to Spirit's shareholders. So JetBlue's contention, one of their contentions to all of this is, has been that Spirit's board is too cushy with Frontier's board. And they've engineered this merger as a benefit for themselves. That's been JetBlue's contention. So JetBlue is continuing to make its argument to Spirit shareholders directly, and they increased their offer for Spirit by accelerating a prepayment of cash per share in addition to the stock that Spirit shareholders will get. They enhanced their breakup fee, the reverse breakup fee, if the transaction is not consummated for antitrust reasons, which is such a phrase. And they uh, added a ticking fee mechanism. So basically, they will start paying a dividend to Spirit shareholders before the deal is finalized. And Basically, uh, we think it's going to work out. So here's some cash along the way. Here's some walking around money. Okay. I just wanted to stop. And I'm happy that hopefully by the time this episode comes out, we'll know the answer. Right. And then we will start the arduous process of DOJ scrutinization and all that good stuff. I just want the emails to stop. Enough. (laughs) I think I've gotten three from JetBlue today. I don't care anymore. Someone buy Spirit. Make the yellow planes, white and blue or white and green, whatever frontier is. Just do something already. <laughs> just to no more emails. Just, just stop. So it, it's we're recording the 29th of June, Wednesday. The vote is, is scheduled. scheduled for tomorrow. As of now, it is scheduled for tomorrow. So regular listeners will know that we tend to record at the middle of the week. And then something usually happens to upset our perfectly – organized apple cart. So my money is if anything is going to moot a point of this show this week, it's going to be the merger vote that's scheduled to take place tomorrow. So we will either know by the time the podcast comes out who, well, we won't know who won, but we'll know whether Frontier's agreement with Spirit was approved or not. Yeah. Then from there, we'll we'll go on. Three emails today, three press releases, by the way. One highlighting the third-party recognition of superiority of JetBlue's transactions. Another, a message to the crew members in which JetBlue highlights the benefits to travelers from a combined JetBlue spirit. And a third, JetBlue issues a letter to spirit shareholders on top of yesterday's three press releases and the one from the day before. What's the title of this now? Support for Superior Offer Modified with... I, I can't even keep track of their offers at this point. (laughs) 
So long story short, we might know something by the time the podcast comes out on Friday, in which case you will have listened to us complain about how much it has taken to get here. Or you could be listening to us next week complaining about the further delays, or if the frontier proposal is rejected by spirit shareholders, we'll see what happens next. As long as JetBlue has the money in its back pocket to actually pay for whatever it's offering for for spirit, fine. (laughs) This seems like an arms race that just nobody's going to win with. Well, I, I mean, this goes back to when JetBlue made Alaska well overpay for Virgin America. I mean, it is a similar run-up, a bit different this time, because I think JetBlue kind of actually wants this. But, you know, goading a competitor into overpaying either way. Someone's going to get stuck with the bill in the end. Yeah. Speaking of getting stuck with the bill, this is an interesting one. Delta Airlines has preemptively issued waivers. Basically, for any reason whatsoever, you you don't have to have a reason to change your your flight. They've issued waivers for the July 4th holiday. So I believe they go into effect the 1st of July through the 4th of July. So you can change your travel if you have a ticket booked on Delta for any time in between those periods. You can change your ticket without penalty and without a fare difference. That's nice. So that basically means you can extend your vacation by a few days, or you can come home early, or you can try, this is the best case use of this, I think, is to try to avoid a connecting flight. So if you are booked, let's say if you're going New York to LA via Atlanta, this gives passengers the opportunity to try to get that one last available seat on one of the nonstops. Probably not going to happen, but a few people are going to get lucky. Delta's not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They're doing it because their operation is bad. Not to single out Delta here because the operation for all US airlines pretty much, at least the major airlines, is is trash across the board. Uh, Cranky Flyer put together a good post scrutinizing the operations of all the major carriers over the last month, and it's bad. It's really, really, really bad unless you're flying Alaska, which it's been better, and I think it was Allegiant, actually. No, it was Frontier, I think. So we'll link that in the show notes. But this is mainly because Delta, American, United, they are not running a good operation. And at this point, they've pretty much thrown in the towel and said, hey, if you want to change your flight, if you can find an open seat, good for you. Have at it. Yeah, I, I think this is something that does not lend confidence. No. That I'm going to get where I'm going on time, or even at all over the, the July 4th weekend. That said, I, I don't have any travel plans, very purposefully. I do not have any travel plans over the July 4th weekend. I'm firmly in the don't particularly want to travel until at least fall camp here, because it, it's things are just not great. There are so many moving parts that are slowing down and some that are not moving already. That my gut feeling and a big fear that I have right now is that we're going to see a lot of quote unquote operational resets yeah. in the next uh, month or two. And we saw a lot of those in summer 2021. And the impacts were quite dramatic even then, but now airlines are running at the brink and they are completely 100% full on most flights. So if an airline the size of Delta or American or United has to hit the reset button, that's going to last a really long time. That's not good for anybody. The problem now is that they being the airlines, 
have no, there's no flex. There's no ability to put you on the next flight because the next flight is full and the flight after that is full and the flight after that is full. It was, it was Nikia, our co-founder today, was trying to fly on a Eurowings flight and they tried to rebook him 12 days from now. Yes. I was going to mention that example. That is not great. That's almost a two-week <laughs> duration delay. That is not a route that he was flying that has a, a nonstop every day and there weren't very many connecting options. But the flights that were in between when he was supposed to fly and when they were offering to fly, they're so full that the fare buckets were listed as like closed and not even accepting people on the, like the wait list or anything, which I, I, I've never even seen that before. So things are bad. Things are not good. And if you can avoid air travel now, it would be a good time to maybe not do that. And I think that's another part of the Delta waiver. You're able to cancel if you want and just take a refund. Stay home. Yeah, just don't go. And I can't believe here we are advocating for uh, people to not travel, stay home. But Well, I don't want people to have a bad experience. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, And it's not just people traveling. I mean, in this discussion, that's the biggest part. But it's also people who work for airlines. I mean, this is not something that flight attendants control. This is not something that gate agents control. This is not something that pilots control. I mean, they can make your journey a little bit better and they're all doing the best they can, but the gate agent is not scheduling capacity. The gate agent's not doing revenue management. The, the flight attendants are not you know, deciding what the fare buckets are and what the schedule for the flights will be and making it so that your connecting flights are too close together. That's not all of the people that that's like the biggest problem with air travel is all of the people that you interact with have no control over any of the things that are negatively impacting your journey. I thought this was the good news section of the podcast. I, yeah, well, this is the mediocre right. news. This section. is the mediocre. We transitioned into the mediocre news. Okay. Suffice it to say is continue to pack your patients, perhaps in a very large carry-on, a rollerboard, if you will, to give yourself some extra heft for your patients. Now, we get to what I think is only good news remains yes. to be seen. Yes, it is. I think this is 100% good news. Yeah. In 2017, Air New Zealand began work on refreshing its ultra long haul cabins. So these are the aircraft that will fly first to New York and Chicago. So I really want to get on one of these. They have officially launched their new top to tail cabin. So they've got what they're calling business premier luxe suites at the very front of the aircraft. Then there's the business premier seats, which are generally speaking, just very, very nice, well-appointed business class seats. There will be a premium economy, and then there will be an economy, but- There's something in between those two cabins, isn't there? At the front of the economy cabin will be a bunk area, including six- full bunks for economy class passengers to enjoy a a snooze. Snoozes are great. Here's the deal with this. None of the other cabins are particularly exciting or anything new or unique. Business class is business class. They're they're 
business plus seat is just the seat at the front of the cabin that has a little more space that can't otherwise be utilized. Premium economy is premium economy and economy is economy. You can't really do much all that different these days, but I think they're calling it Sky Nest, was it? Yes. Sky Nest. This won an award, the, the Crystal Cabin Award, years ago in Hamburg during Aircraft Interiors Expo, which is great. And now they've actually decided to roll it out, which is great. It's a unique. It's I'm not going to say it's something new because I'm pretty sure there have been like bunk beds in the bottom of like DC-3s or whatever way back in the day. Maybe not DC-3s, but some the early iteration of air travel did have luxuries like this. You're not wrong. Early models of the DC-3 did have beds. Hey, okay. I know what I'm talking about sometimes, but we're bringing it back, it seems like. Sure, there's only six of these spots on board, and they're in a part of the aircraft that would otherwise probably not be utilized because these are going to operate very long-haul flights where they they would need to otherwise restrict the payload probably. So it's a unique or an interesting reuse of space and weight they otherwise couldn't use. But it raises a whole host of questions that we don't have answers to, like how long is each passenger going to be able to use that bunk for? An hour, two hours, four hours? How much will you have to pay? It's certainly not going to be a free thing. How are passengers going to sign up? Is it first come, first serve? Do you have to do it through like the IFE system and whoever swipes your credit card first gets it? If I'm in premium economy, do I get to go back and, and lie down? I don't know any of the answers to that. They're probably still working it out. But on 18-hour-ish long flights, I know on shorter flights than that, even flying in premium economy, I thought to myself, there's nothing I want more in the world right now than to lie down. So this is very exciting to bring that kind of, I'm not going to call it a bunk bed, but somewhere to actually lie down. Bringing that back from the old days of airline flying is uh, unique and new. And I hope Air New Zealand didn't patent this and other airlines can roll it out as well. I mean, it is a bunk bed though. It's a bunk bed. It's a bunk bunk bed. It's three stacked on top of each other, right? Yeah. So what it is, is it's basically, it kind of looks like a V where there's the entrance is in the center and then there's three bunks on either side. It's unclear to me exactly how you'll get up. Although it looks like judging from the, the photo, it looks like that there's a center pillar that doubles as a, as a ladder. Yeah. You'll have to be then very graceful getting into that um, upper bunk without waking everyone else up. Yeah. Or I mean, who knows by hour 14, you know, they'll be fine. So while they're still working out all the details, there will be a pillow, bedding, earplugs, a reading light, USB port, and this is what I'm most excited about, an air nozzle. Yes, that sounds stupid. But um, as someone who just it's, flew, it's so important. As someone who just flew on multiple long haul flights on aircraft, new and old, that did not have it. What the hell? Stop doing that. <laughs> I was on an A330, a six-year-old A330, and an ancient, like, 25-year-old 777-200ER. Both of them did not have air nozzles, and it makes the experience appreciably worse. So good on yes. Air New Zealand for having an air correct. vent. Yes. So each bed will contain that. So that will all be encompassed in what the airline says is a four-hour session in one of the pods. So they haven't said how you'll book that, like Jason said, they haven't said how you'll get that four hours, whether you'll have to book it before or book it on the plane or flag down a, a flight crew or something like that. But you'll get four hours to hang out in there, fall asleep, wake up, 
and be done. So that'll be interesting to see how that works. And I 100% want to try that. Yeah. It's interesting that it'll be four-hour periods, I guess, because if you have six bunks and you have four-hour sessions, it's 24 passengers at any given time. And, and I guess you might get three uses on a flight of this duration. So that's 24 times three equals uh, 72. So that's actually a, a good number of passengers, theoretically, would be able to get to use this thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that there's really an option because you can get that many people into it. And and I suppose it's probably actually fewer because like the beginning to end. Right. I would say what, like probably two hours at the beginning is probably not going to work out because yeah. you're going to have some sort of meal service and then at least two hours at the end. So that I, it's really a 16 hour kind of thing. But even still, I mean, you know, say you can get, you know, 60 people in it. Wait, I think my math was way off. It's more like a couple dozen, isn't it? Yeah. Probably. This is why we shouldn't do math. We, we don't do math. That's, that's why I do what I do. But it's more like maybe if you get four sessions out of it, it's more like 24 people, which is still better than zero, but not exactly everyone's going to get the chance to use this. And I think that's fine. If they price it accordingly, you'll probably, they will get what they want out of it. But we don't know what the price will be. But there's also unanswered questions. Like you, you mentioned it a little bit, like meals. What happens if the meal service falls during that four-hour window when you're in the bed? Do they hold your meal on the side and, and re-reheat it when it's your turn? So Re-reheat it. I mean, all time. airplane meals are reheated. That's how it works. So I guess they'll re-reheat yeah, re- it. I don't know. Re-heated. I don't know. Lots of questions. Yeah, I don't know. The one question I do have, and this is kind of the interesting thing that I've been pondering since the announcement is what does the pricing have to be? And I'm by no means an airline, like a, a revenue person. It's the one part of the industry that, that I've just never really gotten. But the thing I've been pondering is at what price point does economy plus four hours in a bunk, what point is that better or worse than premium economy? Premium economy is fine, but you still don't get the ability to lie down and take a proper Nah. Right, right. So is the economy seat plus the bunk going to cost more than premium economy? Maybe. I could certainly see a use case for that or a rationale for charging more for economy plus time in the bed than an economy plus seat or premium economy seat plus without the bed. I don't know. Maybe we'll get to the point in the future where there is no premium economy on board these Air New Zealand aircraft and they expand the bunk area. I don't know. Nah, you're, yeah. nah, you're I, and it's totally possible. This is kind of seems like a pilot use case. And if it's successful, maybe it's something that they do indeed license out and some airline out there takes over their premium economy cabin with this. I would be interested to see what happens. We should also mention that there are two other features to the upcoming 787 fleet that Air New Zealand's running. One is they will have extra space economy seats. So think exit row leg room without the exit row. You also have the sky couch. Yeah, neither of those are new. Air no, New Zealand's, I think they rolled out the sky there. couch like a decade ago at least. Yeah, yeah. So neither of those are new, but they're, well, extra leg room seats, they're just bulkhead rows or exit rows. They're there by nature. But the sky couch, I'm a little surprised that they're actually keeping sky couch when they have sky nest at the same time, but to each their own and they'll see which is more successful. In any case, I want to try it a lot. I want to try it. And I think I've seen a lot of ads around New York for Air New Zealand's upcoming 
service starting in September, I think. So they're pushing hard here. Yeah, September for JFK. And then Chicago is not long after or right around the same time. I will have to double check that and then start booking some flights. Jason. Yes. You are our resident rolling stock, I guess. Okay. Thank you. Tell me what's going on with a new entrant into the Star Alliance. Okay. I'm going to modify that to our resident multimodal expert. Ooh. Ooh, Sounds nice. But Star Alliance has its first, I believe, non-airline alliance member. And this has been alluded to for a little bit, and an invitation went out today. So it's not officially official. We don't have any details, but Star Alliance is going to admit Deutsche Bahn, the German railway operator, into the alliance, which is very, very interesting and raises all sorts of interesting questions like, what does that mean? And what are the benefits? And what will the integration be like? And if I'm a Star Alliance, I don't even know what the levels of status are. But if you have the highest level of status on Star Alliance Airlines, what does that get you on Deutsche Bahn? Do you get free upgrades to first class? You you get to drive the train. You get to drive the train. You get to be the conductor and blow the horn. That would be fun. I would like that. I would actually go for that. I would like that. But this is really interesting because it comes at a time where the European Union is really, and especially countries like France and Germany, they're really pushing rail connections as opposed to domestic airline connections. And to have a tighter integration with one of Europe's largest rail operators is very, 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 very fun and interesting overdue, I think. I wish we had something like that here in the US. United stopped working with Amtrak back in 2020. That would be fun, but very exciting. I think we get more details about that on July 4th. And if there's anything particularly noteworthy, we'll repeat it here. I mean, and so that leads me, I guess, to my next question. Does SNCF join SkyTeam? Does Eurostar join OneWorld? Do you think we'll see more of this? Or is this just kind of the, because of the placement of Deutsche Bahn and the Lufthansa connections, do you think this is more a more unique situation? You can't have a more unique situation, but no. a unique situation. I, I think you're probably on the right path here. Deutsche Bahn is going to end up in Star Alliance because the Lufthansa is in Star Alliance and they have, of course, multiple hubs in Germany. And I don't think it would be unreasonable to think SNCF in France would join SkyTeam. SkyTeam needs more members and it needs it now. It's kind of sad there. I don't really know what major rail operator would there be for One World. I guess any of the ones in the UK, like Southwest Rail. That'd be fun to have an airline called Southwest (laughs) in One World. But what other major One World hubs are there in Europe outside of London? I mean, I suppose you could do Brightline in the US. Yeah, that is something I hope to see next year. That feels like a JetBlue kind of thing since, I don't know, or maybe it could be. Maybe Brightline could be a One World member in Miami, though Brightline has no connection to Miami International Airport, of course. There's lots of opportunity for closer operation between airlines and rail operators. And this is a very interesting first step. Yeah, I I think it's fascinating. And and I can't wait to see how well they actually integrate. Because I think the biggest step or the biggest hurdle to making all these things work has been the, and when we talked with Ned about this, you know, making all of these connections as seamless as possible to make it so that travelers don't think twice about booking a plane to a train to a bus. 
that it's just how they get there because that's the most efficient way for them. Yeah, yeah. And already today, Lufthansa already and many of the other major European airlines already have flight connections to trains and they're protected. If your flight is delayed, they'll put you on another train as would happen, almost happened to Ned. But this would bring the integration much tighter. Maybe they'd be able to issue tickets for Deutsche Bahn inside the United app or the Lufthansa app, and it would make it that much more seamless. So lots of possibilities. And I'm quite jealous that Europe is getting in on this while the US seems to always be going in the opposite direction with rail. But maybe you're onto something with Brightline. That could be fun. You got to start somewhere. Let's go to, we were calling this the bad news section, but there's a lot of bad news in it, but there's also a lot of solutions being presented. So I don't know if the bad news section was the way to go. We'll see what we think when we get to the end of it. Let's start with the fact that the Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Transportation is launching an audit into the FAA's oversight of the Boeing 737 and 78 production programs. I'm quoting from the DOT OIG memo that went out announcing the oversight investigations. Since 2019, a number of concerns have been raised regarding production of the Boeing 737 and 78 aircraft, the two production lines with the largest number of aircraft on order. Boeing has not delivered any 787 aircraft in over a year due to production quality issues, and in December 2021, FAA mandated inspections on certain previously delivered 787 aircraft due to reports of missed requirements during assembly. In addition, a number of complaints to Congress, FAA, and our office have alleged ongoing production deficiencies and undue pressure on Boeing staff in the 737 and 78 production lines. So this is back where we were roughly two years ago. Yeah, a couple years ago. And the OIG goes on to say, in light of these concerns, blah, 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 they're going to take the following precautions, I guess. They're looking to identify and resolve production issues. Yeah, I'm sure Boeing's been trying to do that as well. And secondly, addressing allegations of undue pressure within the production environment. And this is not something new. This isn't something shocking or we haven't heard before. But it is interesting to see that the DOT OIG is now taking an enhanced level of interest into something that the FAA and Boeing have already been going back and forth on for quite some time now. Let's move on to the Netherlands. The Dutch government has told Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam that it must cut the number of flights 12% from its 2019 level next year. So that will limit the airport to 440,000 total operations. Why are they asking? The flight cuts aim to restore... Okay. Huh? The flight cuts aim to restore, quote, the balance between a well-operating international airport, the business climate, and the interests of a better and healthier living environment, so said Transport Minister Mark Harbers mm. in a statement issuing the cuts. So basically, the government, one big part of this is is an environmental issue. The other part of it is the airport's been a mess, and they want to prevent that from happening. Does cutting flights back 12% from 2019 numbers really fix that though? Because it's not really a, there are too many flights problem. Isn't it that there's not enough people to operate the flights and not enough people to operate security and all that? Is this really, really the answer? I mean, this is more of a climate centered ah, thing. Okay. They should just say that. Yeah, no, and they did. They did. 
a majority of the statement was focused on the climatological aspects of the proposal. However, one of the things that KLM is upset about is that this will disproportionately affect KLM and make it, they say, it does not tally with the desire to retain a strong hub function for Schiphol. So this will be interesting to see how much pushback KLM manages and whether the government looks at it and says, okay, maybe we need to adjust or whether they say, you know what? No, we're not adjusting anything. This is how it's going to be. The whole point is that the cuts will curb local emissions, which is something that the government says is extremely important, but also they're pushing the aviation industry to curb emissions generally, and they say this makes a big step to do so. It'll be interesting to see how these cuts are implemented and where those cuts fall on which airlines. Obviously, it's going to disproportionately impact KLM, but it remains to be seen how that breakdown occurs. Yeah, maybe some rail operator in the Netherlands needs to join Sky Team. I'd be all for that. Yeah, take some of the pressure off KLM. But 12% off of 2019 numbers sounds like a big number, but 2019 was also probably an absolute historic high number of flights. So bringing that down to reality probably isn't the worst case scenario. It'll be interesting to see how they manage that. Yep. I'm sure they'll manage just fine. They'll but it'll be interesting to see how. It'll probably come down a little bit. So speaking of airports that have not had that great of a time lately, what is going on in Dublin? Nothing good if you really enjoy security <laughs> lines that take hours off your life. Dublin's the place for you to the point where they might be calling in the military to smooth out operations there. This report comes from Seth Miller at PaxX.Aero. And he pulled from a statement from the Minister of Defense that they might actually bring in defense forces to assist in some of the security screening functions, not passenger facing. So going through security checkpoints at Dublin, you're not going to interact with a member of the military, but they'll do more back of house work, potentially operating the check bag screeners so that people who are operating that now might be able to go to the front lines and operate checkpoints. But it has gotten that bad at Dublin that they are possibly going to have to call in the military to help. That seems very bad. Yeah, it's not great. It sounds like <laughs> it's been better recently at Dublin, but still quite bad if you hit it at the wrong time. But at least they're trying to do something. Yeah, no, at this point, do whatever you need to do. Whatever is going to work, whatever is going to make things better, whatever is going to make things easier for the people traveling through the airport and the people that work at the airport, do it. Right. I don't care what it is. Just do it. And it's for a limited time. They say only six weeks, though. Six limited weeks might time become, only. Yeah, six weeks might become six months. Who knows? But hopefully they can sort that mess out in Dublin because I know people who have actually turned down opportunities to go to Dublin or have changed around plans to avoid it entirely because they just don't want to put up with that mess. One of my son's friends in his class, their family's Irish, and they go back every year to Dublin to visit family. And they, I was talking with, with his friend's dad, and he's like, I'm just, we have to do it, but I don't want, it's like I'm just dreading the yeah, trip just to deal with coming back. So good luck to them, and I hope they have fun. And I'll share their experience either way in a few weeks. 
So you mentioned Seth, and Seth Miller, who, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, does some very good work looking at some various flight operation stuff as well, similar to what Brett Schneider does over at Cranky Flyer sometimes. And Seth reached out to me a couple of days ago and said, hey, can you pull data on the Breeze Airways A220s? And I said, sure. And so I pulled it. And I was looking through it just to kind of do sanity check, just to make sure that, that everything looked okay to send over to him. And it did not look okay at all. He's put together an even more in-depth kind of play-by-play, day-by-day where things have gone bad. But in processing the data to send to him, I had to look it over multiple times because none of it made sense. And I was very confused. I'm like, these flights don't, like certain flights weren't lining up. And I was like, is our data wrong? The way we do scheduled data is we list aircraft operations in scheduled order because, and Jason, tell me if this is something that you think is out of order or out of line. We generally assume that airlines will operate the flights in the order in which they schedule them. Yeah, there are some cases where that does not happen. Like Southwest, I know, is known to skip segments on particular days if there's bad weather or airport issues. But generally, yeah, aircraft follow a schedule and they're supposed to go from A to B to C to D to E and then end up back at A. And generally, like if that happens, like you mentioned, Southwest sometimes with the weather, because they do a lot of point-to-point flying, they'll, you know, if they're supposed to go Chicago, Louisville, Tampa, and Louisville has terrible storms, they'll just fly Chicago, Tampa. That was not the case with the breeze data. Pulling it, there is no rhyme or reason. Some of the flights operate, some don't, some operate out of order, some operate the following day, some are canceled and then reinstated and then canceled again. All of this stuff is very difficult. So we'll link to Seth's post about Breeze because he goes into more depth beyond their A220s, which is just some of the data that I was looking at, but also some of their wet lease experiences that they've got going on now. That's not great that they're into wet lease already. Yeah, it's just not good. And beyond flights also being canceled and delayed, they're also canceling routes at this point. They made a big splash that they were going to start some transcon service and operating flights into LA. Those are gone entirely, in some cases until 2023. And Passengers are being given a pittance in about $100 of frequent flyer points, which is not great if you've seen the price of fares to book alternative travel right now. So Breeze is making a lot of very bad first impressions right now. And some of me wants to say, yeah, this is teething issues with a new aircraft. But on the other hand, some of the analysis that Seth has here is really quite damning in that one of the main points is that for 60 aircraft days of operation shows that fewer than 15% of the trips managed to full out and back with less than a one hour delay at the end of the day. That's really bad. Yeah, this goes beyond teething issues. I mean, this is, you know, full root canal. I mean, it's just not good. When I'm looking at flight data and I'm so confused, I don't know what to make of it. I know it's not good. Yeah. If you're booked on Breeze, make sure you've got notifications turned on or they have your email address or something because you might not like what the new schedule has in store for you. So keep an eye on your flights pretty closely. Yeah. So some interesting things to wrap up the show. One, it's the 29th of June, which means today was supposed to be the first day of the SAS pilot strike. That is currently postponed for 72 hours because the mediator said, let's give it a little more time. And everyone said, okay. 
So we'll see what happens into the weekend. We might be talking about that more next week. One interesting thing to note on the SAS Forward program that we've talked about over the past couple weeks, where part of the big push by the airline to reconfigure its obligations is to convert debt into equity. Norway is now on board with that saying, yes, they'll do that, but we're not going to give you any more cash, similar to what Sweden said last month. So that'll be something to continue to watch. What else do we have? Oh, Russia wants to invest $14.5 billion, so nearly a trillion rubles, to get to 80% domestic aircraft in the fleet by 2030. So they want to increase their domestic aircraft production so that they're only flying 20% foreign-built aircraft by 2030. So they've got eight years that seems unlikely. to go from almost nil domestic aircraft. Well, not, not nil. Not nil. There are some really terrible super jets flying around. <laughs> but a very small percentage of domestic produced aircraft to 80%. That'll be an interesting and very, 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 very yeah. uphill climb. This doesn't really seem like the kind of issue you can just throw money at and solve. Like you need to certify the aircraft and then build them and then put them into service. It's not really a question of money, but actually the competency to build the aircraft and get it certified. I'm sure they can, but to do it in quite those numbers seems, I mean, not really possible, but I guess we'll find out. And what happens to those? 80% foreign aircraft, will they be finally returning it to lessors by 2030? I, I mean, yeah, I, we're done with this. Take it back. Who knows? Yeah, they, they just are flying. They fly them to Turkey and just leave them there. We're, we're done That's with it. this. We, we're and, done and with the lessors are going to be, I don't want this thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 10 years later. Oh, yeah. The whole thing strikes me as bluster. I'm not sure there's much beyond that at this point, but it'll be interesting to see. They're definitely going to be ramping up production. They're definitely going to be ramping up domestic aircraft usage. Whether or not that reaches 80%. That's hundreds upon hundreds of aircraft. Unless, of course, they're contracting the number of aircraft. And to get to 80%, if you only have 10 aircraft, that's that's pretty easy. I mean, that's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Didn't think about that. Addition by subtraction. You look at you thinking outside the box. Ah. I'm impressed. And finally, cargo carrier Silkway, based in Azerbaijan, current all-Boeing operator, has picked up a pair of A350 freighters, plus an option for two more. Ah, good old tow dip. So that'll be interesting to see where they put those into service. I'm hoping Chicago is one of the places, because that'll be interesting to see. And to see what other all-cargo operators develop an appetite for the A350 freighter. Yeah. Nice to see Airbus really get back into the freighter space after the A330 freighter was a market failure. I don't think you can describe it any other way. Yeah. That's a very good description. It was a failure to have an an airline like Silkway pick up a few A350 freighters. That's very interesting. It's only two plus two maybe, but still very interesting. I'm really holding out hope to see uh, the old Beluga fleet get picked up by somebody or somebody to wet least those on a permanent basis. That'll be fun. I don't know if that'll happen, but Airbus has had quite a bit of success with their outsized cargo operation using the Beluga fleet, not the, the Beluga XL fleet, which is obviously still flying you know, parts around for Airbus. But the 
cargo operation for the original Beluga fleet, that's actually been quite successful. Yeah, maybe we'll even see that move transatlantic one day. That would be fun. I really hope. I mean, that would be fantastic. What we need to do is figure out something that only the Beluga can handle and then convince How someone- many ketchup packets will it take? That's too heavy. Ah, damn. <laughs> we need something like a trillion ping pong balls or something. Andrew, if you're listening, what do we need to put on a beluga to get it out here to the US? <laughs> we'll figure that out in between this week and next and report back. But in the meantime, this has been episode 170 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.